Welcome to The Tangent, everyone. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. And this week, I am joined by Malachi Fallon. Malachi is the executive director of the Xavier Society for the Blind. Xavier Society for the Blind, since 1900, has provided resources for the visually impaired, in particular, helping to provide Catholic resources, Catholic print media and audio media for those who are unable to see. It's a fascinating apostolate and entirely nonprofit organization. If you'd like to learn more about the Xavier Society, go to XavierSocietyForTheBlind.org. You can donate, you can learn how to take advantage of the great resources that they offer, you can support the Xavier Society and their mission, and if you listen on, you'll hear just a little bit more about the great work done by Malachi Fallon and the Xavier Society for the Blind. Enjoy. Malachi Fallon, thank you very much for joining me on The Tangent tonight. It's uh, it's great to be with you. Great to have you here talking about the Xavier Society for the Blind. It's great to be with you, Father. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the Xavier Society for the Blind, because like I told you before we started recording, until until I got the email saying that there was such a thing as the Xavier Society for the Blind, I did not know that there was such a thing as the Xavier Society for the Blind. Okay. And that's that's why we really appreciate you know having the opportunity to, to be on uh, programs like this, podcasts like this, because it really does help us get the word out. Um, serving people who are blind or visually impaired, we can't just t- you know take out a a print ad in a local paper because you know literally people won't see that. The people right. who we serve won't see it. We we hope that others will and you know spread the word that way, but it doesn't always happen. Uh, but Xavier Society, get back to your question. Xavier Society was founded in 1900 uh, in New York City. Uh, we borrowed space at that time from what was then known as uh, Xavier College, it is now Xavier High School. Uh, so that's oh, how okay. we, that's where we, we took our name. So down on 16th Street yeah. in, uh, in, in Manhattan. Uh, we were co-founded by uh, a young woman, Margaret Coffey. Uh, who was blind, uh, and she taught blind students. She basically was what we would consider a, a CCD teacher today. Mm. So she was teaching her students about their Catholic faith. And Father Joseph Stottleman, a Jesuit priest who was working in the area. And, and at the time, I read this recently, at the time he was actually working with deaf children. Um, so I think Margaret understood that, you know, uh, he, he was involved with kids and involved with uh, kids with disabilities, and that uh, he would probably be a good partner for her. Um, but she got together with Father Stottleman, and they established Xavier Society. Uh, and not only was she a co-founder, she was one of our first donors. She donated uh, $350, uh, which then was quite a lot of money. We did a back-of-the-envelope calculation uh, recently, and it amounts to about eleven thousand dollars in today's oh, wow. in today's money. Um, and Xavier Society used that donation to purchase uh, what was called the stereograph machine, uh, which was a machine that allowed Xavier Society to produce greater volumes of books in raised print. At that mm. time, uh, we weren't using Braille, uh, although Braille was around; it just hadn't been adopted yet. Uh, we were t- using a type of raised print, uh, which was known as New York uh, Point. Uh, mm. So the purchase of the stereograph machine with uh, Margaret Coffey's initial donation allowed us to, to produce uh, more books 
in in greater volume. Now, you'll have to forgive my ignorance on this. I, I don't know very much about Braille raised print or, or anything like that. So, uh, how how long has Braille existed? First of all, so that's a great question, and I should know the answer to that. <laughs> but it was uh, invented by uh, Louis Braille, a Frenchman. Um, I think the in some time in the eighteen hundreds. Okay, um, and, and so. You see it on all kinds of things. You see it on signs. You see it in elevators, and and there's there's books, um, and of course I I don't know Braille, um, but Lewis Braille he 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 saw right. He was able to see, or was I, he blind I also? He was, he was blind also. He was blind. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Now, when when somebody's reading in Braille, uh, do they read with one hand or do they read with both hands at the same time? So typically is, read with, with one hand. One hand, um, okay. Yeah. And does it matter and which hand are using the right or the left? I don't believe so. Okay. I don't believe so. Huh. This is the kind of stuff I and, and does the does the print go left to right? It uh, does. Does it the go up and down? Go left to right. Left to right, okay. Yeah. yeah. So huh. the rays print the dots and so the there there are a sequence of dots that form letters that have the meaning for different letters. And then those series of dots then uh, combine to to form words. Wow! And then just by feel, they they know in, immediately as they're as they're feeling it what the what the letter is and and how the how the words go together. Yeah, I, I mean, I had no you know I had a prior career in the in the corporate world, so I had no um, you know I, I hadn't worked with uh, visually impaired people, blind people before. I had really not a great familiarity as you could tell still yeah. to a certain extent with with braille um, but it is amazing uh, how quickly people uh, can read and comprehend using wow. using braille I'm fascinated by it because it, it seems as I when I've touched a braille sign before it, I have no I have no way of making sense of it at all and so it seems like the kind of thing that would be really difficult to, to learn. But of course, I think just like we we pick up letters as we're if, if you have if you have sight and you're able to look and see and see letters, you start to put it together. It becomes something that you just you learn, and it becomes very natural, almost almost second nature. But I'm I'm so fascinated by it, the idea that there's that there's this whole system and almost a secret code. Yes, yeah, and I think it's like you know many other things. Um, Typically, children, you know, are, are learning Braille early on. You know, children who are born blind or lose their vision early in life, mm. um, so they they learn Braille early on and they pick it up. Like you know, like we talked about kids learning languages today, and if a, a child learns a language, a second language early on, um, you know, they have greater uh, facility with it. So I think it's it's similar for Braille as well. And then what we're hearing and reading about and experiencing is that more people as you know with our aging population uh because of various ailments and diseases there are more people who are losing vision uh later in life mm. uh, and older people aren't going to to learn braille um, sure one it's because it's just more difficult you know at at, uh, at a later age and then also they don't have the sensory they don't have the tactile sense to sure to, the, uh, to feel the the dots yeah yeah the the fingers start to lose something as they as you get older that's, that's right very, that's very true so if if the xavier society began in 1900 then you're starting of course with with print 
and with resources for for those who are visually impaired in print, raised print, eventually moving on to to Braille. Um, but as time has gone on, you've you've added certainly lots of other lots of other resources, not just not just those things that are are in print. That's right. So over time, you know, we began uh, recording books uh, on on you know records, long playing records, uh, reel to reel uh, cassettes. Okay. Uh, never a track, uh, but cassettes, <laughs> um, and then on uh, CDs uh, more recently. And then uh, in the last several years, then we converted um, our audiobook recordings to uh, what's referred to as digital talking book uh, hmm. technology. So it's essentially they're, they're on, the books are on flash drives, but the flash drives are encased in cartridges that can be played on devices uh, that are provided free of charge by the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Okay. So it's been estimated that the and, and the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled is part of the Library of Congress. And it's been estimated that they've provided those talking book machines to over a half a million people in the United States. Wow. So we made the decision a few years ago that we would make our audiobook content available and compatible with those digital talking book machines in order to to reach more people. Now, what is the difference between a, a digital talking book machine and say the Audible app on my phone? So the basically the devices that we send out the cartridges uh, they're encrypted. So they can only be played on uh, these machines. Okay. And that help and these machines are only provided people who are certified as being blind or visually impaired that that helps us uh keep in line with the copyright laws so as long as we're uh, okay. making uh books available in that encrypted format um we don't have to worry about the the copyright laws in the united states interesting in that case then the the books that you're making available are these public domain are they are they books that uh might not otherwise be uh, available, like, uh, say, somebody's taking a theology course, and and there's a book that has not been printed in Braille uh, or has not been recorded as an audio book, but you've got a, a blind student who needs to study theology. So is that the kind of reason why you'd have it as as something encrypted? I'm thinking about Audible and and books on tape and things like going back a ways and how easy it was to to read those books, but those of course are copyrighted too and the publisher gives permission for them to be recorded so this would be more of those books that maybe nobody was looking for an, an audible format so typically yeah the, the books we you know our, our policy if something's otherwise available in audio and typical typically in on audible uh, we, we won't record the book um, because it's already available and it's relatively inexpensive to to get those audio books elsewhere so we're providing titles that you know aren't otherwise available, so it might mean that they're more specialized. Uh, mm. A lot of the, the 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 content that we provide is related to the Catholic faith, uh, not exclusively, but much of it is. Uh, much of it is related to spirituality, uh, you know, inspirational titles. So again, uh, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily specialized, but you know, it's the not not the type of books that you're going to see on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list. Yeah, 
Sure. Well, and, and even just Catholic book publishing itself is kind of a, a niche market. So there's there's a lot of things that sure wouldn't make it onto the New York Times bestseller. You're not even going to find it in, a, in your typical bookstore, uh, but there's a tremendous need for it. And if that need can be met in, in this way, especially for, uh, let's, let's say, a niche market within a niche market, You've right. got your your booksellers, then you've got uh, your raised print Braille booksellers, and then you've got the Catholic booksellers and Catholic Braille booksellers. So even more, like we're getting even more specialized as as we go. So to have something that can really dig into those those Catholic books that would need to be available to to the visually impaired is uh, it's, that's really powerful. I like it. Yeah, and, and and again, we so much of what we do is you know based upon the requests of our patrons, right? So, mm. uh, you know, that's what we try to fulfill as many of those individual requests as we possibly can. Um, and then much of what we still do goes back to our original mission, and, and that's providing workbooks and textbooks for children who are learning about their Catholic faith. So it's the, the workbooks and the resource books for the CCD classes. Okay. And we still do quite a, quite a number of those. Yeah. And that's got to be an enormous help to parishes. If if you think about the the number of times a parish, your typical parish is going to encounter a student with this particular need. Uh, I've, I've, I'm a parish priest now. I've been a pastor for eight years. I've been a priest 15. I've, I've never once had a student with, with that particular need. Um, I've had, I've had some adults who I've encountered with with visual issues who, who need some, some assistance. Um, but I've, I've not encountered a, a single student yet. Um, to know that the yeah. Xavier Society is there to help with exactly that need. Here, we've got the catechetical textbooks. We've got the Baltimore Catechism. We've got these things available. That's, that's really wonderful. Yeah. And, and um, you know, that, that, that we're often approached by those, the teachers, right, or the parents of the children, which is great. So they hear about us through their parishes, or they often hear about us through um, any one of the schools for you know the blind across the country. They're mm -hmm. requesting those books, and you know um, there are a lot of you know colleges and universities. They have their offices for disabled students, so they're supposed to make their best attempt and efforts to get um, you know textbooks for students. Uh, and make those available in whatever accessible format is necessary uh, hmm. for their students. About how many people do you think the Xavier Society is serving on an annual basis? So we say we have about 2,500 active patrons. Okay. Um, so they may not be requesting, uh, you know, titles uh, every month or, you know, every year, but, you know, they're requesting uh, titles from us uh every other year or so and some may very well be requesting titles on a, on a monthly basis but it's about 2500 people that that we serve on a regular basis and then one of the other um uh business lines that we have if you would uh, it always sounds funny to me but again it's my corporate background coming into play <laughs> uh, we provide the mass the sunday mass propers in braille um, mm. so essentially the missalette um, and we provide that to about 700, 750 individuals uh, each month. So we send out, um, e each month we send out four weeks worth of the mass propers. They go out to about 700, 750 individuals 
across the United States and in 20 countries outside the United States. Wow. And I was, I was looking on your website that um, it's the Xavier Society for the Blind.org, correct? That's right. That's Xavier right. Society for the Blind.org. Check it out. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was looking yep. on the website and, and you've got priests who you serve, uh, blind priests. That's who right. are yes. celebrating mass and and using using the missal in braille and and able to celebrate mass that way. Again, this is my own ignorance, but these these are things I was fascinated to find out as I was looking at your website that there's I didn't know that there were uh, that there were blind priests who would be served in this way. I know a priest who has has since passed away who as he got older his vision deteriorated uh tremendously and he could he couldn't see eventually but he he always had his sight his whole, his whole life but to to learn about about priests who are are blind and who are are doing this it's it is fascinating yeah you know we're we're um we're fortunate to have a wonderful spokesperson for Xavier Society uh, it's a young, a young priest father Jamie Dennis from Owensboro Kentucky and he comes up with the exception of the covid year uh, mm. He comes up to New York on December 13th, the Feast of St. Lu- Lucy, one of the patron saints of the blind, yeah. to celebrate uh, our annual St. Lucy Mass uh, okay. with us. And he's been receiving materials from us in Braille since his time in, in the seminary. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, so there there are a number of other priests that, that receive our, our material and uh, a number of seminarians as well. Wow. It, it's such a, an interesting space to to be providing a service and really truly something that I, I think would go unnoticed by by most of us I again until I heard of the Xavier Society I, I wouldn't have thought about this at all um, and it, it strikes me as something so important and, and so necessary and it, it I'm embarrassed that I hadn't thought of it before I was talking with a, a parishioner here who is blind and I asked him, I said, I'm, I'm going to be doing this podcast with Malachi Fallon from the, the Xavier Society for the Blind. And he said, oh, the Xavier Society. I know the Xavier Society really well. And he was excited. He told me all about it and how he's benefited from the resources. And in fact, uh, as he came into the church, he, he's a convert to Catholicism. And as he came into the church, the resources that Xavier was providing and how helpful they were. And then he was he was mentioning that with with the proliferation of different technological things. Uh, there's so many more resources now for the visually impaired, so many more things that, that can help them. He said that uh, the the great thing that the Xavier Society provides is, is still the, the Braille resource, especially for Catholic literature, which is so often otherwise unavailable. Um, but then how there's, there's sort of an all ages component to this. Um, you mentioned before that you have somebody who, as they get older, loses their, starts to gradually lose their sight and needs some more support versus somebody who is uh, blind from birth or from an early age. And of course, the resources that they'll need are different. To learn Braille at a young age uh, or early on is, is one thing. To try to learn Braille later is, is a very different thing. Um, so how do you bridge the gap between the different needs that are present within the visually impaired population because there are so many different things that would be needed how are you able as a society uh to to really try to meet each each different need in the best way so you know part of part of our the issue the challenge for us is just resources financial resources um you know we're constrained there's only so much we can do 
um, we have a small staff. We only have five, five full-time employees. Uh, we do rely on volunteer readers and freelance audio engineers to help us with our audio books. And we also engage when needed um, a freelance Braille transcriber. We have a certified Braille transcriber on staff who mm. is always, always busy. I um, imagine. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we try to fulfill as many requests uh, as we can, but then we're always looking at new ways to serve more people. So moving to the digital talking book format, you know, was a good example of that, right? So we had the, the sort of the, the widely accepted technology um, for, you know, audiobooks in the United States. So we moved to that. Uh, we're also looking at ways to create books using uh, text-to-speech technology. So we have a, a, a pilot project underway to see how close we can get the books to sounding like you know, human-read uh, uh, audiobooks or human-narrated audiobooks. Okay. And that would allow us to produce those audiobooks much more quickly. So uh, as opposed to, you know, currently in order to, you know, get the, uh, to schedule the, the volunteer reader to work with a, an audio engineer, it can take sometimes six to nine months to complete uh, an audio. Oh, wow. So uh, using the, the text to, to uh, speech technology would help speed up that process. Um, Absolutely, yeah. There, there are other technologies, you know, we mentioned the paper braille, but there are devices known as refreshable Braille devices. So we can send an electronic Braille file uh, to someone, and they can download it on their device, which basically the, the dots uh, come up on a, a board and keep refreshing as the, the, the file is being read by the, the device. So uh, that allows people, oh, wow. it's, it's, it's much more efficient for us, um, to, to send people books in Braille electronically. So we're not dealing with, with the paper and, and the volumes. Typically, you know, if you look at a, a standard print book, the book in Braille could be five or six you know, large volumes of Braille. So the sure. Braille books are much bulkier. Um, so it's more difficult for us in terms of managing the, the shipping and then also for our patrons in terms of the receipt and storage of, of those books. Again, um, so I, we're, I, we're I, making I feel sure ver- we can adapt uh, to changes yeah. in technology. I, again, I feel very ignorant here because I'm thinking to myself that Braille has to always be physical, has to always be on paper, has to always be something very literally tactile and so produced and then sent out as is. You're telling me that Braille has been digitized and right. can, can essentially be, be put onto a device and that's just blowing my mind. How do you do that? How how are they? I've got my phone here, and and how does my phone uh, have that have that? That's incredible. I am I am fascinated by this idea. Now, is is yeah. that a separate technology that they've created, or is this something that's like it's right on your your iPhone or your Android or something? Or so it a- it's not going to be on your on your smartphone. So it's a separate device, and there okay. are quite a number of these devices available. Um, they have a variety of different features, um, and uh, you know they're not inexpensive. Although there are a number of organizations out there uh, that are piloting 
different devices to try to to get all the you know the most necessary features on the devices while keeping them as affordable as possible. Mm. So these are devices that are are made broadly speaking for the visually impaired to help them to to read braille and that can receive this kind of digital braille text. So separate from your your phone but still giving you the that, that is just it is so fascinating. Yeah, it, that is just that yeah, is so fascinating to me. I mean, when you look at, at so the, make, make make yourself a note to look up to you know at some point look up refreshable braille devices and you can get a you know you'll see uh, a video and, and see them in action. So it is it is quite amazing and quite fascinating. Well, I always think about it. every time I if I have to travel someplace. I mean, I like to have a book to read, and it, there there are certain books that I, I prefer to have as a physical book. Like I prefer to have my breviary as a physical book. There's something about the interaction that a, a human person has with with a physical book, uh, turning the page, the the feel of the book in your hand, the smell of the book, and then of mm -hmm. course just the the print that's on on the page. I, I kind of prefer that, especially for for prayer. But if I'm just reading a book or if I've got to travel and I don't want to have a whole lot of stuff with me, you know, the the Kindle has been a great thing. It's just some kind sure. of an e-reader. It's it's so wonderful to have because you can you can bring a whole lot of literature with uh, a very very small device and and not much going on. So it's it's kind of a nice thing. Again, I'm feeling very ignorant. I've never thought about that for for someone who is visually impaired who needs braille because of how big a braille physical braille book would have to be or how many volumes there would have to be and that they've invented something that can bring braille right to you as a portable that is, a portable that is device, fantastic yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah great strides with the technology uh for sure and you know it's interesting also what you you, you know what you just said because i think the same debate uh, is ongoing in the blind community in terms of physically having braille right with all mm -hmm. the technology that's available for blind and visually impaired people um you know, text to audio screen readers on their computer you know the read aloud I, I mean even in word microsoft word you know you can do get a document and then have it read aloud you know mm -hmm. on your on your computer uh so there's lots of technology out there that people can use to listen to books or to listen to content. Um, but there's this, this debate about uh, children learning Braille and having the physical experience of reading Braille yeah. um, and how that helps just like, and I feel the same way as you do for certain books. I, I want to hold the book. I want to have the book in print. I feel that I have better comprehension, right, uh, and better retention if I'm reading the book as opposed to listening to an audio book. So that same sort of debate is ongoing uh, as it relates to Braille in the blind community. Now, is that is that something that becomes also sort of cultural or, or maybe subcultural? I, I, I don't know. Um, again, I, I'm trying to think of a, some kind of a, a corollary. Uh, it would seem like teaching Braille is, is going to be a value no matter what, because a device breaks. Uh, power goes out, you lose your internet connection. There's, there's something that makes it impossible for you to, to use the electronic device that's going to give you that. But so having the, the physical, uh, the physical ability to read in Braille would seem to be a really, a really wise choice, but also something that's of, of a cultural value. There's, 
almost a secret almost a secret to this to this way of of reading and and seeing things that the sighted population doesn't have access to and there's something beautiful about that there's something beautiful about this this unique component of 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 this population within the population yeah yeah now that that's interesting yeah and it's using different senses and and feeling the word so it's a uh, you know, obviously, it's a very different, different experience. Yeah. Well, it gets me thinking about things like um, I was watching the other night. We had our, our middle school youth group was was gathering, and uh, the kids were checking in, and they they just signed their names next to their uh, next to their their printed name. And a, a lot of these these kids have not learned how to write in cursive mm-hmm. because they a lot of their schools have stopped teaching cursive. And this right, is a thing right. that for me is is I don't understand why in the world schools have decided that cursive doesn't yeah. matter anymore. To me, it seems like an enormous educational mistake to give kids that, that sensory skill and, and this particular way of doing it. And so you see kids who have learned cursive on their own or their parents have tried to teach them, but they only have certain letters. And so they'll write a few letters in cursive and then they stop and they print the next letter and then they go back to cursive. And so they're even when they sign their name, it's sort of this broken, semi-printed, semi-cursive. And and I think what are we losing it by not teaching the yeah. kids cursive? Like what's what's being lost? There's there's a there's something to the culture. And even even think of it as like a rite of passage. Do you remember when you were allowed to use an ink pen? Oh, in yeah. school yeah. like you start sure. off you, you were only allowed to use pencil and then yeah. and then you, you got to that point where like here here's your ink pen and it was I mean, it was yeah. amazing i remember yep. in, third, in third, third third grade at resurrection ascension school <laughs> in, in rego park queens and mrs o- <laughs> mrs oakley's class so i, I remember see? it very well like, like it was yesterday <laughs> yes see i didn't get a, i didn't get a pen until until fourth grade uh, at St. James School in Stratford with Mrs. Jordan. Uh, and, and it was an erasable pen. See, I, I don't know if they had erasable pens in, in your time, but the, we got the erasable pen and uh, it was terrible. An erasable pen is, a, is an abomination. Uh, but then you get well, the, the real thing later on. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up as well, because part of what I do is fundraising. And so oftentimes I'll, I'll be participating in webinars or seminars on different fundraising techniques. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was on a seminar a couple of years ago, and uh, the the facilitator was just talking about the importance of handwritten thank you notes. Uh, that is just so important, and it really, you know, uh, uh, people really appreciate that and recognize the time it takes to do that, and really personalizing it, right? Uh, in cursive, yes, uh, ha- still still has a great deal of meaning. I have a friend of mine who listens to this show is going to be very glad that you just said that, because she's always after me about writing thank you notes, and so, you know, Liz will be very very grateful that that you uh, talked about the personalized. Well, uh, uh, no, forgive me, Father. I didn't mean to <laughs> create more work for you. I I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's the thing. I I have a, a priest friend, and and he's the master of the thank you note. Uh, we had an event and and he came to it and it seemed like the next day it was it was actually two days later but the thank you note arrived and I just couldn't believe how quick he was to get the thank you note and handwritten very neat penmanship but it was the the handwritten it was so personal there's something to that and I think as Catholics right we talk about the incarnation 
And so the the incarnate the the incarnate aspect of our of our being that we we are bodily, and so the the senses matter. And so if we're talking about writing something, to be able to to write in 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 script, to be able to write and to to know that this there's something about me that now is on the, is on the page. But then likewise, I'm I'm thinking Braille now. You're opening my mind and and my my eyes to this this gift of braille and and what an incredible thing that it's physical tactile it requires a skill to learn to to be able to read it it's it's something that is so particular it could easily be lost yeah and especially yeah. if it starts to be replaced by technology right, right right it could easily be lost and and I think we would be poorer to, to lose it. Just like we, we see this happening now with, uh, with different languages as different languages are, are, are not being taught. Uh, a, a culture starts to die out and the language also dies with it. Uh, mm-hmm. And the importance of keeping languages alive, um, that they, a language is valuable in itself. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, for many of our patrons, when they talk about the, the mass propers in Braille in particular, so it allows them to, to follow along, to actively participate in mass, right? To respond, to you know, hear the prayers, to say the prayers, to respond uh, is very important to them. So it allows them to pr- actively practice their faith in their parish community. And then uh, quite a number of our patrons also serve as lectors in their parishes. Really? So uh, you know, without those, without the the paper braille. You know, mass propers, they wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, so, you know, other devices, you just you can't picture, you know, uh, using any other sort of device uh, in order to uh, enable people to, to participate in that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm still just kind of stuck on the idea that there's an electronic Braille machine that will, that yeah, will the- give you, in a portable way, uh, a constantly renewing... Uh, screen basically to, to read that's that it, it is the most incredible thing I've, I can't even imagine coming up with such a technology and yeah you, and I can't imagine in 10 years I mean you know things are improving all the time so there's great hope that you know these devices will continue to improve uh, like any technology the the price will continue to come down uh, their the use will be more widespread yeah. without really losing you know the experience of 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 reading Braille. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, with the, the Xavier Society, um, is, is the Xavier Society a nonprofit? Yes, it is. Yeah. Nonprofit, okay. And so where does most of your funding come, come from? How, how, are you, how are you raising the money? So we rely on individuals, um, both in terms of, you know, uh, our direct appeal campaigns, uh, direct mail campaigns, so in- individuals making gifts um, you know, on an annual basis or several times a year. Uh, we rely on uh, those individuals also to remember us uh, in their estates, in their wills. So over the years, uh, people have been very generous uh, to Xavier Society uh, in their estates with bequests. Uh, we have a number of smaller uh, foundations and family foundations that, um, you know, have an affinity for Catholic organizations or organizations that serve uh, blind and visually impaired people. So everything that we do 
uh, is supported by donations and fundraising, uh, and we don't charge anything for the uh, the content, the, that, the books, that materials that we provide. That was my next question. Do you charge for it? I, I think that's wonderful that you're able to give this away for free. Yeah, so it's been that's that's been our mission all along. So we've never charged uh, okay. our patrons. We do have generous patrons who will make uh, donations and make gifts to Xavier Society, but we don't charge for any of the materials that we provide. Wow, that's great. Now, I would imagine that your, let's say your most popular items would be things like the Bible and the Mass Propers, to be able to follow along with the Mass. Uh, that would seem like also a spot where there's there's just a tremendous need. I want to be able to to read along with the readings uh, as they're as they're being read. I, I want to be able to to read along with the prayers and and to understand them better. Um, first of all, are those actually your your best sellers, as it were? So, good guess. Yes. So <laughs> the uh, the mass propers, uh, the Bible, um, the catechism are always at the at the mm. uh, the top of the list. Um, a lot of a lot of books on prayer. Um, and and different prayers, different prayer books for the different seasons, um, you know, of uh, of the Catholic Church. Um, I'm I'm looking at the bookshelf behind you. Yeah. And the Bible, Old and New Testament in Braille, uh, would fill probably two of those. Oh my cases. goodness! <laughs> it's about it's about 39 volumes of uh, of uh, of Braille. Wow. So it's a lot. So a few years ago, we at one point when people requested the Bible in Braille, we sent them the whole Bible, uh, Old and New Testament. And then we realized that that's somewhat impractical. Uh, so now it, people can request individual books, uh, either in the okay. in, from the Old Testament or, or New Testament. And they can sort of put together the the pieces as they go along. Correct. And really Correct. dive into the set. That's Wow. I mean, that's, that's a lot of books. It is. That's, that's a lot of books. And, and it is. The, it, is. It, would, it would seem like that, yeah, that would become almost cost prohibitive too, just to try to send that out. Um, that emphasizes, I think, then the generosity of your donors that they're, that they're giving this. And you, you've been able for 120 something years now to give away all these resources <laughs> to the people who need them. That's right. Incredible. And so one of the other things, getting back to, to one of your original questions and observations. So it's it's like we're always looking at new technologies and new ways to, to serve our patrons. But we've also taken a look back recently. So uh, a few years ago, we stopped providing some of our materials in large print. Um, and when I say large print, it's not typically the large print, the, the font size that you would see in large print uh, books in bookstores or, you know, books that you receive through Amazon or the like. So it's a lot larger. The font is typically 22 point or so. So it's, it's very large font. So for financial reasons, we stopped doing that a few years ago, but we're, we're beginning to reintroduce uh, large print uh, for a number of our offerings. So we're starting with the, once again, with the Bible uh, and making that available because uh, people can download it in a large print format on their devices. Mm. So uh, initially, we're making it available for download, and we're also now looking at ways to uh, and and 
potentially partners to have it printed in large print to, to provide the, the paper, the print version of uh, the Bible in large. So uh, while we're always looking ahead, there's certain things from the past yeah. that uh, we want to be able to continue to do or reintroduce. And large print is one of the areas that we're, we're looking at now again. Well, and that's that's bridging the gap between the the different types of needs, right? That correct. Some somebody who is uh, fully blind would need the braille, but somebody who is losing their sight or who's uh, who maybe is uh, they're they're at least able to see something, the large print would be the would be the big help for them. Right. Can't can't learn braille. Not ready for all audio. So the the large print is a, a nice bridge. Yeah. Good solution. Yeah, and that well, and then to be able to provide it, it, it emphasizes the the full mission that the, this this mission of the Xavier Society is is broad in its in its scope. We're we're looking to take care of of the visually impaired, whether they are blind, partially blind, legally blind, or, or simply are are struggling with with their sight. Uh, yeah. To be able to to cover all those bases is incredible. Yeah. So one of the th- phrases we hear more and more of is. T- talking about referring to people who are either no vision or low vision, right? Mm. So there's sort of a, a whole uh, spectrum of, of, of people uh, in terms of where they uh, where their vision is. Yeah, you know th- that's an interesting point, and I guess kind of culturally now we're we're in this place where we, we want to use the correct terms when we when we talk about different things. Um, am I going to need to apologize for anything I've said so far? Are we okay in, in the, the way that we've talked about this? <laughs> so it, it all sounds fine to me. Father. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's important, that, you know, we, we talk about visually impaired, low vision or no vision. These these are actually, again, you're, you're teaching me things today. This is great. Um, no, but to, to know that and to know how to best approach that that subject. You know, this is actually an area was, I was saying to you before we started recording that um, in an article that I was reading recently, they pointed out the sometimes in in the church we talk about marginalized communities and we might go to sort of an easy an easy example uh, but often when we do that we're ignoring uh, a a community that could very very easily be if not marginalized with any intention um, marginalized by lack of access and it's it's the, a lack of access that comes because most of our churches are not really well suited to taking care of our disabled brothers and sisters. Uh, and that's uh, physical accessibility in some cases. You have very old churches, churches built in certain in certain places where there's just no possibility of renovating or, or doing anything, adding an elevator, for example. Um, there's not much in the way of, uh, I, I can't really think of too many places. There's You always see them on TV and, and in videos, but I don't. I don't know any parish in my area that has a mass for for the deaf or the hearing impaired, mm-hmm. uh, and then and then so the occasionally blind. you'll see people. You know, the, the um, using sign language uh, yeah. during the mass. Um, but but no, uh, it's 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 a challenge. You know, one of the things that I often talk about was the first year that I was executive director at Xavier Society. Uh, we had our St. Lucy Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. So not on the main altar, but uh, the, the Lady Chapel yeah. uh, behind the main altar, which is a smaller uh, worship space. And 
December 13th, 7 p.m. Mass, Midtown Manhattan, Fifth Avenue, across from Rockefeller Center, you know, <laughs> Christmas season. Yeah. And our patrons got there. Our patrons got there. Um, and it, and it's wow. not easy. So that made an impact on me right away. I mean, it was very, um, you know, apparent to me yeah. just how difficult, uh, you know, it was for our patrons to get there. Um, but yeah, they, they would they, have had to come to one of the most... To, they would have had to come oh, to one of the most crowded places you can possibly go to at one of the most crowded times of year and then into a, a very crowded cathedral because even even in the evening, St. Patrick's is still buzzing and there's all kinds of stuff going. And then they have to get all the way to one of the most crowded areas of the cathedral because that chapel, if you're doing a special event there, that chapel's not big. Uh, yeah. You're, you're no, right. It's, it's not, not a large it's place. Not, not easy to find. And and uh, so we, th we moved... Um, we did that once I started, we did it there two. We had it there two years and then we moved to St. Francis Xavier church on 16th street. So back okay. to where we started just simply because it was a little easier, um, to get uh, to and from, and it's a midday mass now. Um, and, uh, we were running out of space in the lady chapel because not only because of our patrons, but because of, of, of their dogs as well and you don't often think about the that's right you know, the, the guide dogs so right right uh, yeah so a whole nother uh <laughs> challenge there wow well, as we talk about this accessibility and the the things that are, are kind of needed in the church whether it's physical space so that yeah the guide dog can be there um planning so that the time of of day is is useful for people or the location is not going to be so overly crowded and, and congested that it's difficult to, to get to the spot. Um, what would you recommend for parishes in terms of uh, creating that accessibility, even if it's not something that they, that they necessarily need all the time, right? So, so I think, um, and a good example is uh, St. Francis Xavier. So they have volunteers that are available to assist people who are disabled. So if someone's coming to, to mass and, you know, there's an issue, whether it's blindness, deafness, uh, if there are mobility issues, uh, they can get in touch with the, the parish staff and have someone there to assist, uh, you know, during mass. So I think that's, you know, it sounds like an easy thing. Not a lot of investment is, is necessary for something like that. And I think it's just also then being more mindful, just being, mm. it's the awareness, right? Um, we have a, a patron, she's a wonderful, wonderful, delightful woman, and she lectures uh, at her parish quite often. And she had, she had told me a story that she really wanted to uh, read at the Easter Vigil. And, and she'd been doing this, you know, Sunday Masses on a regular basis, um, but wanted to read at the Easter Vigil. And uh, the parish, uh, the, the pastor uh, had said, well, you know, the Easter vigil, we do that by candlelight and it might be difficult for you with the, with the low lighting. So this is a woman who's completely blind reading Braille. The lighting is <laughs> not going to make a difference. But it was just sort of that, that lack of awareness. Sure, uh, you know, sure. Um, so. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great point. Now, 
I know one thing that I've I've seen sometimes with parishioners who have different needs, um, whether they they're not able to see or uh, a physical uh, disability, where you know they're they're in a wheelchair or a walker or something. Um, I see sometimes my ushers they they want to they want to help, and there's also a little bit of nerves to approach and and offer that help because they don't want to be imposing and they don't want to be disrespectful. And at the same time, the there's a genuine desire to, to serve and to assist someone. But they also want to be very sensitive because they know that these folks made it there somehow on their own. Mm-hmm. They're, they're clearly very capable. Um, any advice for that? How do, you, how do you tactfully and kindly, politely offer the support and the help knowing that it might not be needed? Well, that's it. So I I think that's it. You say, you know, would you like assistance? Do you need assistance? May I offer you some assistance? Is there anything, you know, I can do for you? And oftentimes people will be happy, you know, uh, and I've gotten to know some of our patrons, you know, pretty well and and see them on a regular basis. And so now I can say, well, you know, do you want to grab my, do you want to grab an elbow? Right. So, yeah to just to, to help escort them, particularly in an area uh, that's unfamiliar uh, to them. I think for the most part, if people are familiar with, uh, you know, an area, a building, a facility, um, they're, they're, it's amazing what they, what they, what they can do. Mm. Um, I, I have an example. One of our board members, uh, he, he's got a degenerative eye disease. He's a relatively young man. Uh, he spent some of his time in London, and I happened to be over there, and we were meeting with uh, someone from the uh, Church of England uh, about ministering to uh, you know disabled individuals in one of the parishes in uh, the Diocese of, of London. Hmm. And so my board member, after we fin- you know finished, we had lunch and we had a, co- a couple of calls and things like that, he wanted to escort me to the, the tubes, the tube station, just yeah. to make sure that, that I, I, I got to the right place and I got to where I needed to be. Um, so, you know, some people do have a great sense of independence, um, but um, certainly many recognize if, if assistance is available, uh, they're happy to have it. Um, they just don't want to, they, they don't want to feel like they're, you know, being uh, needy. So I think it's just yeah. a matter of how the how the assistance uh, is offered. You know, it's interesting that you that you bring up that example of I, wanting to make you comfortable and make sure that you got to where you needed to be, and then said, "I'll I'll take you there. Let me let me show you the way." My my great aunt, God rest her soul, she was a sister of mercy, and she had macular degeneration, and so as as she got older, her eyesight was going more and more. Uh, she used to send me notes and. Uh, she would always apologize for her handwriting, and it was it was perfect. And she was a sister of mercy, so she had perfect Palmer oh, penmanship. Yes, yes. You know, sure, <laughs> she'd always, yes. she was always apologizing for how it was getting sloppy, and it was still better than anything I could ever write. But I went to visit her at the uh, at the nursing home where she was, and she was sitting in a room. And I came over and I sat down next to her, and I, I started to talk to her, and I had to tell her that I was there and, and who I was. And she took my hand and she said, "Get me out of here." I said, well, where do you want to go? She goes, let's, let's get out of this room. Let's, I, I don't want to be here anymore. Let's, we'll, we'll, we'll go to another part of the building. I said, okay. I had never been to this place before. 
And she said, just get me to the door. So I got her to the door and she's all right now let's let's turn left so we turn left and we go down the hall turn first left we turn we turn left again we're going down basically a service corridor there's stuff in the hallway everywhere and she goes the elevator's right up here on the right and sure enough there was the elevator so get me on the elevator so we got on the elevator second floor yeah. okay second floor turn right off the elevator she knew exactly where to go she just needed to make sure that she could get there and i was I was fascinated by this because she navigated the halls better than I possibly could have navigated them. Oh yeah. And she couldn't see a thing. Yeah. It was no, it was amazing. She just needed a is. hand to to steady her. Um so I'm I'm really fascinated by by these kinds of things. Um one of the questions that I I ask all of the guests on the tangent is what advice you would give to to a priest. Now I want to kind of specify that in this context in the context of what uh you've been talking about Malachi with the, the Xavier society for the blind um, for a priest helping someone who's visually impaired for a priest, helping someone with, with any kind of particular challenge. Um, what would you want them to know? What would you want that priest to know? And how would you want them to serve that person? So I think it goes back to a little bit of, about what we were just talking about is that people, People want to be as independent as they can be. Um, they just need, um, you know, occasionally to have an accommodation or just, you know, there needs to be an awareness that, um, one, the, you know, the materials may not be available in Braille, right, or in accessible formats. People want to be involved uh, in their parish life. They want to come and, and say the prayers and responses, you know, uh, along with the rest of the congregation. Um, they want to be able to, um, you know, participate as lectors uh, hmm. in the Mass. So uh, I think initially, you know, it probably takes a little bit of effort to kind of figure out uh, what's necessary. But um, once that's done, my experience with our patrons, <laughs> you know, they're very yeah. committed, uh, they're very determined, uh, and, and they're very independent. Uh, so, uh, I, I think the, the rewards, you know, w uh, will be great. Hmm. Um, another example that I often give is that someone, one of our patrons and, and he reads at, at mass in his church all the time. And he loves to tell people, uh, you know, that, that people come up from the congregation afterwards and say, I just love when you're doing the readings because you make such great eye contact. <laughs> with the uh, people in the pews because you know he doesn't he doesn't need to look down at right. the uh at the uh at the at the readings so uh so they you know there are um different gifts uh that uh our patrons can bring you know to their parishes um and their communities so it's important to yeah. to recognize and remember that as well Beautiful. Well, I love the idea of, of making that invitation almost, recognizing the gifts that somebody might have and, and not assuming something. You talked about the, uh, the Easter vigil and the concern that with the low lighting, it might be difficult for you. Um, I think sometimes we priests, we, we kind of make the decision on our own for somebody, and it might be good for us to offer or to ask, make the invitation first, and and then worry about what what comes from that. Um, yeah, wow. Well, 
Malachi, you've been really generous with your time. I'm, I'm very, very grateful to you. Can people give online to the Xavier Society? If they go to XavierSocietyForTheBlind.org, would they be able they to find can. a donate yes, button? Yes, they can. Make, they can. Uh, and all the information is they can donate that way, or if they feel more comfortable dro- dropping a check in the mail, all the information that they need to do that is there. Uh, if, you, uh, if anybody who, who uh, hears this podcast would like to get additional information, uh, in addition to going to our website, we have an 800 number and we have a client services coordinator. Um, the 800 number is 800-637-9193. Uh, that's 800-637-9193. And our client services coordinator, Saul, would be happy to, to help them through the process of getting registered with us and finding out more about what's in our catalog Uh, and what materials um, they might want to receive from us. Outstanding. Malik, I thank you. And thank you for the work that Xavier Society is doing. Uh, It's it's really tremendous and and beautiful to see. And I'm I'm so grateful for for what you're doing and for the time that you've given us on the tangent today. Well, great. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, see each other at the Rose Hill Gym at a Fordham basketball game soon. Amen. Yeah, we we should (laughs) have talked about that. Yeah, Malachi and I are both Fordham grads. This is great. Xavier Society for the Blind, uh, XavierSocietyForTheBlind.org. Malachi, thank you again. Uh, It's been great having you. Thanks very much, Father. Take care now. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find The Tangent wherever you get your podcasts on VeritasCatholic.com. You can also listen to us on the radio, 103.9 FM, 1350 AM. You can find out more about the Xavier Society for the Blind at XavierSocietyForTheBlind.org. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. Unfortunately, not joined by my co-host Matt Sparazza this week, but he'll be back next week. God bless you.